0: FMR
1: 101.3 People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. This is Rodney Trudgeon welcoming you to this week's edition of People of Note, right here on Fine Music Radio. I'm looking forward to introducing you to my guest today, whose name is Mike Bruton, who is one of the leading fish biologists in Africa. Mike was born in the town where the first living coelacanth was discovered. He studied at Rhodes University in South Africa at the same time as the great ichthyologist Professor J.L.B. Smith, who first described old forelegs, the coelacanth. Mike Bruton became director of the Ichthyology Institute, named after Smith, and pioneered searches for the coelacanth in southern and eastern Africa. And together with colleagues from all over the world, he made many new discoveries on the biology of this extraordinary fish and campaigned internationally for the conservation of the coelacanth. Mike recently published his autobiography called When I Was a Fish. And most recently, a book called Traditional Fishing Methods of Africa. So, Mike, welcome to Fine Music Radio. Welcome to People of Note. Thank you, Rodney. It's a pleasure to be here. One of my first questions is, when I saw your autobiography called When I Was a Fish and started browsing through it, the passion that you have for fish made me wonder why on earth you had written a book called Traditional Fishing Methods of South Africa, because mm. it occurred to me that maybe you are anti-eating and harvesting fish.
2: No, uh, quite the contrary, uh, the study of fishes involves both their biology and their ecology as well as the the ways in which we utilise them and If it wasn't for the commercial importance of fishes and their value uh, as food, there wouldn't be as much interest, and therefore there wouldn't be funds available to do research on them. so the two really
1: complement one another. That's a very sensible answer, I say. But Mm. now, what made you write uh, the traditional fishing methods of Africa? And if I had just flicked through this book with my thumb, I'm absolutely amazed by the variety of methods. Mm. And is this something that you've wanted to get down into print for a while?
2: Yes, it's been incubating ever since my years in in Zululand in in the mid-70s when I was exposed to this fantastic variety of traditional fishing methods used by rural people. And, in fact, I was able to adapt some of them for use in my own research to do quantitative analysis of fishes. And I was lucky in that I was based at Lake Sabaya, where the people are still fishing in traditional ways. Nearby was a cozy system with its famous set of palisade fish traps in the estuary. And also nearby was a Pongolo floodplain, where the Isifonia baskets are used in thrust
1: basket fishing, one of the most unusual methods of fishing in Africa. Gosh, did you, with these lovely pictures you've got in the book, did you take most of them? Because you've Mm -hmm. obviously been to some extraordinary venues to get these pictures. Well,
2: back in the 70s, we were still in the color slide days, and regrettably, most of those slides are no longer publishable, so I I had to uh, collaborate with colleagues all over Africa, and then revisit the various sites to take digital photographs. But sadly, many of the traditional fishing methods have actually gone extinct. They've disappeared over the last few decades, which is a great pity because many of them use fishes and other aquatic animals in a sustainable way. In contrast, to very efficient modern methods which are destroying the resource uh, because they are so much more efficient and because they use resilient materials
1: which don't rot away uh, in the water. Are these different methods that you have come across and write about in the book, do they belong to different tribes or are they cultural methods because they are so different mm. well, it struck me as being so different There's some
2: techniques that are, are used throughout Africa and in fact in South America and Southeast Asia as well such as valved traps but there are other methods that are specific to particular tribes or water bodies and 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 what struck me in the study is how an intimate knowledge of fishes and their aquatic environments and the behaviour of fishes has led to different designs, which take advantage, for instance, of shoaling behaviour, breeding migrations. Hiding behavior of fishes, so these techniques required a great deal of knowledge um, of the, the behavior of the prey in order to be effective. Gosh. And sadly, that knowledge is being lost. It's not
1: being passed on to the next generation. So, are these tribal people who invented this system, are they now being modernized as well? I mean, one thinks of fishing with a fishing rod. That's one on a rock and being contemplative, let alone the big trawlers at guard. So is mm-hmm. that now affecting these people? They they're learning new methods.
2: Well, one cannot blame any fisherman, especially in a, a remote rural location, from using the most efficient gear available and now they can buy very efficient gill nets at the local shop. They are donated mosquito nets to combat malaria but they use them as fishing nets and they are ruthlessly efficient because of their fine mesh. But They also cause a lot of harm because they are impregnated with insecticide which gets into the water and accumulates up through the food chain. Oh so you know, unfortunately the replacement of these traditional methods with modern methods is damaging the resource and it's a lose-lose situation for everybody because many African people are dependent on fishes and other aquatic organisms as a a source of animal protein. So Mike, who did you aim this book at? It's a kind of hybrid book. It, It contains a great deal of new information on the range of traditional fishing methods in Africa. But it also is useful for, for children and students because we include in their various activities, did you know boxes, and as you can see, it's extremely well illustrated. Mm, it is. <laughs> You'll also notice that some of the fish, traditional fishing methods are illustrated on postage stamps because those are the only illustrations of those methods that we've been
1: able to find.
2: Many of them have
1: never been photographed it looks as though it is certainly going to be enjoyed by children as well to get a knowledge of what has been going on Mm. and also to perhaps try go back to that sort of period Uh, you know how retro is so so maybe it will have a sort of Mm. (laughs) positive effect your book i'm sure you hope it will anyway
2: well i i really believe that um, people in africa should recognize the value of indigenous knowledge systems and the way in which they've been used uh, sustainably over the years to harvest natural resources and the traditional fishing methods of Africa have actually largely been ignored by the indigenous knowledge uh, community. So I'm very glad to be able to bring these uh, facts and figures and illustrations
1: together and hopefully stimulate more interest in this topic. Absolutely. And as you say here, fishing is one of the most ancient forms of hunting, which we forget, don't we? Mm. The fish in the water has always been there. Apparently, we originate in the water. But we're going to talk about that later sure. when we come to your autobiography, When I Was a Fish. Right. But we're going to come to your first piece of music now, and you've chosen rather a grand piece, Finlandia by Jean Sibelius. And I always like to ask my guests Mm. why they chose a particular piece of music. I've been fortunate
2: in that I've been able to visit Finland on several occasions recently to collaborate with a colleague, Dr. Pele Persson, the founder of the Eureka Science in Invanta, south of Helsinki. And while I I was in Finland, I took the opportunity to do cross-country hikes and cross-country skiing and I came to appreciate the beauty of the country. I, I really think that Sibelius's music captures the beauty and the vastness of Finland. And I believe that he wrote this piece as a patriotic piece of music at a time when Russia was threatening the sovereignty of Finland. And it was particularly written to support some newspaper journalists who'd been suspended from writing editorials that were anti-Russian. And one piece which was particularly popular, the the last tableau, was subsequently revised and became Finlandia, which still today is sort of symbolic of the, the national unity of Finland.
1: Part of Finlandia by Sibelius, that rather magnificent piece of patriotic music, as Mike said there. I think, Mike, it was also used for a short time as a national anthem in Finland. And it was performed by the Philharmonia Orchestra, conducted by Vladimir Ashkenazi. And my guest on People of Note here on Fine Music Radio, brought to you by Peter Dreen Productions, is Mike Bruton, the ichthyologist, and his autobiography, When I Was a Fish, was released recently and then reprinted recently as well and we've been talking about traditional fishing methods of Africa but one of the things that I apparently Mike you say always come up is the coelacanth Mm. in my introduction I spoke about that it's played a huge part in your life and you say that every time you do an interview or do a talk at question Mm -hmm. time people talk about the coelacanth that's right so this is my question What is it about the Stelacanth that is so special? Mm. Why has it created such an extraordinary burst of interest in the natural world?
2: Well, there are many reasons for that. Firstly, it has a most interesting natural history. It has an interesting fossil record going back 420 million years. So the dinosaurs are sort of picanins compared with the coelacans, if I can put it that way. And it's a window into the past that allows us to examine a living fish, which is very similar to fishes that existed hundreds of millions of years ago. It also enabled us to test the predictions made by paleontologists based just on the fossil record and largely they've been shown to be true. The other reason is the living fish has such an extraordinary biology and and a range of behaviors. Like no other fish it's almost as if it has adopted solutions to the challenges posed by evolution which are unique in the animal kingdom but also it has a fascinating cultural history an amazing range of of, of scientists and and other people have been involved in the cilacan story so the bringing the two of those together it's one of the most fascinating animals on earth you know how we
1: are told that animals keep adapting through the millennia yes. as the world adapts, and in your book, you also talk about the shifting plates and the continents and the volcanoes and the earthquakes and the winds and the tides yes. animals fish birds all adapt. It seems to me then that the steelcanth hasn 't it well it hasn 't adapted it 's exactly the same as it was when the dinosaurs were around, why did it never adapt?
2: Well, that part of its anatomy that's preserved in the fossil record, the hard parts, is very conservative. Its basic shape has stayed the same. Well, what we now know from studying the living animal is that its physiology and its breeding methods and so on are highly advanced. In fact, its method of breeding is one of the most advanced of any fishes and very similar to that of mammals in that they produce a few very large eggs. Those eggs hatch inside the mother And she has an incubation period of a phenomenal three years and three months. It's nearly twice as long as the next longest animal, the elephant. And uh, when the young are born, they're 33 centimeters long, 500 grams in weight. They look like miniature adults. That is a very advanced breeding strategy. So you have in this conservative, as it were, old-fashioned body, very modern ways of of making a living. Good heavens. And how recently was it discovered? The living coelacanth was discovered in December 1938. That was when the first uh, specimen was caught off East London, and that's why we regard it as South Africa's fish. And then, of course, at the turn of this century, a population of living coelacanths was discovered in the Isimangaliso wetland park in northern Zululand. So we have a resident population as well. But since then, they've been found in the Comores, where the main population appears to be, in Mozambique, Tanzania, Kenya, and Madagascar. And surprisingly, a different living species has
1: been discovered in indonesia as well good heavens because i read somewhere that they are very delicate aren't they the, the temperature of the water must be just right they are as as robust as they look mm. very delicate fish Well, they're delicate in
2: some ways, in that they are very sensitive to low oxygen saturations. we found that the hemoglobin content of the blood is very low, the gill surface area is very low, so they have a a, a relatively restricted ability to remove oxygen from the water. So they need to live in in well-oxygenated, cooler water. Hot water contains less oxygen. So when they're brought to the water surface where it's warmer, they struggle. So that is what they're vulnerable to. It's not so much temperature and it's not so much pressure, but
1: oxygen saturation. But I was interested because famously you went down in one of those machines and observed them, which for you must have been an incredible experience. Yes. And it seems as though they sort of hover in the shade in, in caves in the dark far away from well I suppose predators as well. Yes.
2: Yeah they're big fish they they reach 1.6 to 2 meters and 100 kilograms but they have predators uh, large sharks um, and what we've found is during the day they hide away in caves and they come out at night to hunt and they can do that because they detect their prey not using visual cues but using electroreception. they detect the electrical field of their prey
1: at night. And, and and that's why they were so successful. Mike, how was it discovered? Because I seem to remember again from your book where you, you document this, that a lady in East, East London. London was called to see a pile of fish. She ne- nearly didn't go. It was Christmas. That's right. Is that the actual discovery? It
2: is an extraordinary story. Marjorie Courtney Latimer was a young curator of the East London Museum, and she befriended the skipper of a local Irvin and Johnson trawler, Captain Hendrik Horsen, who kept... Um, inedibles, as he called them, for her. And she would go down to the harbor and select specimens which would be mounted and put on display. And on this occasion, the day before Christmas in 1938, he phoned her to see he had a collection of interesting fishes. But he hadn't particularly uh, noted the coelacanth and she went down and uh, fortunately and went through the the pile of sharks and skates and, and, and other fishes and saw this iridescent blue fish and although she wasn't a fish expert she was enough of a natural historian to recognize that this was something special something totally different to any fish she had ever seen before and with a great deal of trouble she Managed to persuade the taxi driver to put the smelly fish in the taxi, <laughs> took it back to the museum, and then contacted J.L.B. Smith, who was an amateur ichthyologist in those days. He was a, a chemistry lecturer at Rhodes University. But he had a good knowledge of fossil fishes. and because of the conservative anatomy of the coelacan, he was immediately able to recognize it and he urged her to keep it for science.
1: Gosh, it must have been a, a eureka moment for him. Yes. Especially because presumably they hadn't ever been seen. In the past no, well, of years.
2: Their fossil record ends sixty five million years ago with a great Cretaceous extinction that caused the big dinosaurs and the flying dinosaurs to go extinct. So and no fossils have been found since then. So it was assumed that it, it had gone extinct. So it was really the equivalent of finding a living dinosaur walking down the street. Good <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, let's ponder
1: that with your next piece of music, uh, Mike, which I see is Gustav Holtz, The Planets, yeah. Jupiter.
2: I've always been interested in music that has some connection to science or scientific discoveries, although I believe that this piece was inspired more by a friend of his who was interested in astrology, which isn't science, rather than astronomy, which explains why the planets don't include Earth. But apparently the piece is meant to evoke emotions and feelings about what the different planets would, how they would affect the psyche of people on Earth, rather than the characters of the Roman gods after which they are named. And and it's a piece that's always fascinated me.
1: That's part of the most popular movement from the planets. Jupiter, the bringer of jollity by Gustav Holst, and there you heard the Berlin Philharmonic, conducted by Sir Simon Rattle. The choice of my guest on People of Note on Fine Music Radio this week, the ichthyologist Mike Bruton. We're having a fascinating conversation about coelacanths, and shame, Mike, I suppose you're just thinking, oh, this is like every other interview, all we talk about is coelacanths, but we're not going to do that. (laughs) Let's move away from the coelacanth, because there's something important about it that I want to come back to later. And I just want to talk about something that to me seems to have been a hugely important aspect of your life and that was your work at Lake Sibaya in Maputo land. I don't think I realized where Maputo land was exactly, all this lake, but your chapters seem to indicate that it's the most fascinating ecosystem up there.
2: Mm. I was very fortunate after I completed my honours degree that Professor Allenson, Head of Zoology at Rhodes, posted me at Lake Sabaya, and I was literally deposited on the shore of this remote lake at a very kind of rural research station to unravel the life histories of two important fishes in the lake. Lake Zabai is South Africa's largest freshwater lake, natural freshwater lake, and it's formed tucked up against the dunes of Maputaland, which is that part of northern Zidaland between Lakes and Lucia and the Cozy system and the Mozambique border. So it's not part of the Cozy system? No, no, it's ah. a separate lake with its own catchment. It's fortunately for a zoologist studying fishes, it has crystal clear waters. So I was able to follow Jacques Cousteau's maxim that if you want to understand a fish, you've got to become a fish. <laughs> <laughs> so I spent as many hours as I could underwater, which was not without its hazards because the lake was inhabited by crocodiles and hippo and leeches and snakes
1: and uh, other stuff. But we managed to, to live together. Yes, your book is quite entertaining, actually, because you do talk about, yes. shall we say, encounters yes. with crocodiles. I remember once you thought it was a log and you flicked it over and it was a crocodile lashing you. That's right. And the dreaded hippo.
2: Yes. Uh, Hippos are probably more dangerous than crocodiles because they're very aggressive animals. On one occasion, our boat was lifted entirely out of the water by an angry hippo. And we're fortunate in that it didn't tip over and tip us into the water because it would have chomped us and we would have been dead because we were far from shore over deep water. So, um, yes, there were some adventures, uh, also with snakes and so on, (laughs) but we managed to get a a lot of research done, and fortunately the two fishes that I studied, the Mozambique tilapia and the sharp-toothed catfish, have become very important aquaculture species, and I I believe that my studies are still the most detailed ever done in in the natural
1: environment of those two species. Mike, why is that lake so special? Such a um, You said uh, it's got its own system and all that, mm-hmm. it's clear water. Mm-hmm. How did it end up like that? Were there all sorts of major geological shifts and yes. and things. As the
2: sea level changed and, 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 and went lower, um, a series of dunes parallel to the coast were formed. Previously, the Pongola River flowed straight out to sea, and Lake Sabaya was its estuary. But then the dunes eventually close it off, so what we have is a freshwater lake, but with some estuarine animals still living in it that have adapted to fresh water, and that was a world first and a really interesting opportunity that we had. It's also a very important lake from the point of view of the local Amatonga people because they harvest the fishes there and also uh, water lily bulbs and reeds, etc. So we need to understand you know, at what level it could sustainably be harvested for, for the benefit of the local people. And it became one of the best-known lakes in Africa. Sadly, I've subsequently learned that the lake has been grossly abused, uh, too much water has been extracted, the water level has dropped by over five meters, it's invaded by alien mollusks, so it's not in good shape at all and, and it really needs more research and more management.
1: Are some of the pictures from your book, Traditional Fishing Methods of Africa, are any of them from Lake Sibaya? Yes, there are
2: some methods uh, photographed there. The... uh, there are a variety of methods, including the valve traps, which are made from reeds and leaf stalks, mm-hmm. uh, very commonly used as sabaya. They also use fishing assegais of various kinds and reed traps. But it's a fairly deep lake with only narrow, shallow edges and, and, and can be quite stormy. So they're restricted in the number of methods. There are much more extensive traditional fish traps north in Kozi and in Maputo Bay and Orfanyaka
1: Island, and then again inland at the Pongola Flood. Plane. So as I said that lake and Maputo land in your research there was obviously hugely important to you and you write about it very passionately mm. in your book but then am I right in saying the next step you, did you then go to Grahamstown?
2: Well my years in Lake Sabaya were the equivalent of my voyage of the Beagle. You know that was <laughs> yes. the first opportunity I had to practice as a scientist to to pursue the scientific method, produce unique results which were then publishable. So it was a very important platform on which my career was based. I I subsequently briefly went back to Graham Sound to write up my MSc and then my PhD, and then I went on postdoctoral to the British Museum Natural History in London, which was a stark contrast I to the absolutely. rural parts
1: of northern Zululand. <laughs> what a contrast that must have be. been! Yes. But a fascinating contrast, I'm sure, with a different yes. aspect of your work. Yes. But then. Importantly, you were at Grahamstown, weren't you, as head of that department? And that was a significant part of your life, and a significant amount of research that has benefited everyone was done there.
2: After my stint in London, I was appointed a senior lecturer in ichthyology at Rhodes University within the ichthyology institute, which was then part of the university. Soon the institute became an independent national museum, and the university, with my involvement, established a new department of ichthyology and fishery science for teaching. And that was what I headed up, and that department to this day is absolutely thriving, producing wonderful graduates in both pure ichthyology and in applied
1: fishery science. Unlike Lake of (laughs) (laughs) That's (laughs) right. (laughs) Well, I'm going to come back to your career and how you ended up, for example, at the Two Oceans Aquarium. Mm. But your next piece of music is Tchaikovsky. We've got some ballet music here from the Nutcracker.
2: Well, I I had a very early interest in ballet, right from my school years. And long before I had any science heroes, Rudolf Nureyev was my ultimate (laughs) hero. (laughs) and when I went on my postdoctoral to London, Carol and I were able to see some world-class performances of ballet including Margot Fontaine in Swan Lake and I was hooked for life and I've been interested in ballet music ever since then. And I think what I like about these Tchaikovsky pieces is the way in which he's captured the essence of different cultures in these different dance sequences. I, I think it's a very interesting piece.
1: some of the delightful dances from the Nutcracker Ballet Suite by Tchaikovsky. And as my guest Mike Bruton said, it's amazing how Tchaikovsky was able to create different cultures in each of those dances with the sound of the orchestra, with the instruments he used. And this is People of Notes on Fine Music Radio. My guest Mike Bruton, the ichthyologist, and his biography, When I Was a Fish, has fascinated me recently. Also his new book, Traditional Fishing Methods of Africa. But Mike, you were telling me that you have a passion to make science more accessible. I think one of your other books was The Greatest Inventions in South Africa. You seem not only to be in the academic world, but you seem to have a flair, certainly from reading this book, Mm. to communicate really quite complex ideas and concepts to the man in the street, Mm. i.e. me.
2: Yes, I, I decided actually at the peak of my career as a research scientist that I want to change direction and share my experiences with the general public. And um, while developing the Two Oceans Aquarium, I became exposed to the interactive science center movement that was developing around the world. Uh, And these are museums that are designed to demystify science and make it accessible to lay people. And I felt this was a very important thing to do in South Africa. So I, I basically terminated my research career and started what was then known as the MTN Science Center at Canal Walk in Cape Town, now the Cape Town Science Center. And, and the whole idea is to bring science into the mainstream of society. You know, music and arts and, and, and culture are very much part of the mainstream, they, but science yes. tends to be a, a bit of an ivory tower activity. And I, I felt that because science and technology are such an important part of our everyday lives, this was not an acceptable situation. I also feel, and and this has been strengthened by the time I've recently spent in the Middle East, that to some extent science is under threat. Its value is not being appreciated. The products of science are not necessarily being appreciated. And so it's all the more important to to bring it to the public's attention. And that was one of the main reasons I wrote my autobiography, to share my experiences not only as a research scientist, but um, share my views on the value of science in modern society.
1: Are there people interested in science? Are our science departments at universities filled with curious minds like yours? We're very lucky in South Africa in that we do
2: have a relatively strong science culture. But what brought this into focus for me was living in Bahrain, where they're a technologically advanced society that's rejected science. They either don't believe in many aspects of modern science or they're not allowed to. And I found basic tenets such as evolution and natural selection, continental drift, carbon dating are totally rejected so it's possible for a society to be technologically advanced but scientifically backward and uh, recent surveys in the usa and europe have revealed that up to 50% of people are creationists who, who believe we coexisted with the dinosaurs and and that uh, you know evolution never took place even the moon landing uh, you know was a fake And, you know, we can't afford a situation where the value of science isn't appreciated. So that's why I've put my effort in the last half of my career into informal science education.
1: Mm. And when you spoke about Bahrain, I know that one of your, well, I think I'm going to say jokes, is that you (laughs) dress up as a sheikh, Mm -hmm. but there's a significant historical reason for that rather than Mm -hmm. just a frivolous joke. Perhaps you can share Mm -hmm. that with us.
2: Well, firstly, I've always felt that actors are the best communicators, and informal science education is all about communication. So... I've involved myself with professional actors in particular David Miller and he and I produced 10 different science theater plays to demystify aspects of science the most successful of which was called Imagining Einstein which oh, 10 see. years later David is still performing oh, right. in southern Africa and is about to perform it in, so in you the were Middle involved East. With that as well? Yes. Goodness. So I developed the storyline and David is the actor. While I was in Bahrain in 2015 The United Nations declared that year as the International Year of Light, and the reason they chose that year is because it was 1,000 years after the publication of a book called The Book of Optics by Ibn al-Haytham, the father of optics, who was a Muslim scientist. And and we set up a replica of his laboratory in the Bahrain Science Center where I acted as Ibn al-Haytham and repeated the experiments that he did on the properties of light and the theory of vision and recently I've been involved in refurbishing the famous old observatory museum in Grahamstown which has a camera obscura which is a device that Ibn al-Haytham himself invented a thousand years ago so I dressed up as him in my kufaya and my abal my dasher, and my dishdasha, and talked as if I was living a thousand years ago and any devices developed as a result of my research on optics I had to ask the audience about them, you know, cameras and projectors <laughs> and kaleidoscopes and periscopes and so on. So we had a nice dialogue, them telling me what has been invented on the basis of my early research on
1: optics. Since you were a thousand years ago at exactly. that stage. Exactly. Incidentally, if listeners are interested, they can see part of your outfit on our website just <laughs> ahead of this interview. Okay, so we're going to take one more music break now. Then I want to talk about something rather fascinating that you've mentioned about the coelacanth once again. We're going to go back mm. to the coelacanth, I have to tell you, Mike. Mm-hmm. And I see Yehudi Menuhin here playing Mozart. I was very fortunate
2: to meet Yehudi Menuhin when I was working for the MTN Foundation as head of the MTN Science Center. He came to Cape Town to promote his charity, Violins for Africa, which MTN was supporting at the time. And I'll never forget the chats I had with him. I found him to be a wonderfully genuine old man very interested in talking about music and, and the therapeutic value of music in society and ever since then i've been a great fan of his music
1: part of the Adagio of the Violin Concerto Number 3 by Mozart, and the violinist there was Yehudi Menuhin. And you know what? Mike Bruton, my guest on People of Note here on Fine Music Radio, brought to you by Peter Trin Productions, what has fascinated me is your choice of music. And, of course, I haven't yet said to you, does music play an important role in your life? How does ichthyology and music go together? Well, I, I'm not a musician,
2: but I am very interested in music, and my wife Carolyn especially keen on classical music. But it's amazing that there are sometimes links between music and ichthyology. To give you an example, I was a visiting professor at the University of Guelph in Canada, and once a year they had a fundraiser for their ichthyology institute that they established. And this fundraiser took the form of four musicians playing original Stradivarius string instruments, which belonged to a billionaire publisher, Herbert Axelrod. And I'll never forget the beauty of this performance in, in Guelph using those instruments. And afterwards, we were able to examine the violins and violas and talk to the musicians. And I remember the violinist telling me that they were designed to be very loosely strung because they, they they were used for chamber music, performances in small rooms, not in, in
1: vast opera houses. Oh, right. Gosh, who would have thought Stradivarius and ichthyology? <laughs> and I'm glad it stayed in your mind, Mike. But one of the things that fascinates me, again, going back to your book as we approach the end of the program now, is some of your chapter titles like Ying and Yang. Mm-hmm. I mean… How do you apply yin and yang to fish? I collaborated
2: with a Canadian scientist, Eugene Ballon, who is originally from Czechoslovakia, and and he had uh, a lot of interest in, 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 in Eastern mysticism. And what we were studying at the time were the two life history options that fishes could adopt in different environments. And we found that the the yin and yang principle was a very good way of illustrating this marriage of opposites, how one is needed for the other to to fully develop to fruition. And from my research at Lake Sabaya, right through my career, he and I developed what we call the theory of alternative life history styles. And we used yin and yang to to symbolize those alternatives.
1: But you said you were attracted by the lateral thinking aspect of it (laughs) as well. Exactly, yes. There are fascinating chapters, like the one says why don't fish have necks? (laughs) (laughs) Can you answer that in a few seconds?
2: Well, they don't need necks because they don't have to look backwards because they're like submarines. They're bristling with sensory equipment and especially the ability to detect vibrations in the water and the electrical fields of other organisms. So they are already sensing everything that's to the side and at the back. There's no need to turn their heads.
1: You reminded me in another chapter is My Family and Other Animals after one of my most favorite books, the Gerald Dorrell book, with that yeah. fascinating story. Mm. And your book reminded me of that. And I just wondered, where did, were you one of the children who sort of used to collect snails and insects and cockroaches and spiders and terrify the daylights out of your family? Absolutely. And my, my house was a living
2: museum. Table. I had collections of beetles and butterflies and moss. I had live ant colonies. I made a massive collection of skulls and skeletons. I collected plants. So, I was a very very keen young natural historian.
1: So where did the love, the passion for fish come in?
2: Well oddly enough going fishing with my uncles in the Nahoon River near East London, fishing for Spotted Grunter and cob, but very soon I realized I was going to learn a lot more about fishes by being underwater with them. So I I made my own snorkel and goggles and flippers initially and I spent hundreds of hours literally (laughs) underwater living with fishes and I took that into my research career.
1: Do you still do that?
2: Yes, as whenever possible. I choo- tend to choose places to go on holiday where the water's clear and the fishes are interesting, and I still do a lot of diving. And yes.
1: still get a thrill out of it, out of seeing Absolutely. these remarkable Yes, yes. These remarkable
2: And things. I was very lucky uh, during the height of my research career to collaborate with Professor Hans Fricker from Germany, who has the research submersible Jago, which was capable of going down to 400 meters. And we did work in the Camores, but also off the east and west coast of South Africa. And we're among the first scientists to see, you know, what exactly was going on down there.
1: When you say down there, what you said in your book somewhere, you often wonder why down is wrong. You know, everyone lifts up. Everything up is good. Everything yeah, down is yeah. bad. Meanwhile, your theory is that going down into the depths creates this incredible sense of elation and beauty.
2: Yeah, there are so many figures of speech in English that going up is aspirational and good and going down is bad and evil. But we have so much to learn about the oceans. Uh, you know, not only are they 76% of the surface of the planet, but more importantly they're over 95% of the habitable volume of the planet. We are very dependent on processes that start over the sea. So being going down should be seen as good. <laughs> but somehow I can't see President Kennedy saying, you know, by the end of the decade, we'll go to the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> it's just not the same.
1: No. Uh, and also there are, I dare say, possibly hundreds or thousands of life forms that are yet to be discovered in the depths of the oceans. Mm.
2: Which well, p- interestingly, uh, four times more people have been to the moon than have been to the bottom of the ocean. Good
1: grief. The d- deepest part of the ocean, I presume. Deepest part of the ocean, just as a final thought, because now we've run out of time, which is very sad because there's so much I wanted to talk to you about, Mike, is we're going back to the coelacanth. Sorry about that. But you mentioned something that you said is potentially controversial, and that is actually capturing one. Mm-hmm. And one can imagine everyone throwing up their hands. What is your reasoning briefly behind this?
2: Well, firstly, so far no coelacanths have been caught on purpose. They've all been caught accidentally. And when they were only known from the first specimen in South Africa and from Grand Camor Islands in the Cam- we were very concerned that aquaria might try to capture them, there might be a run on the because everyone wanted one to display. Um, so uh, Professor Pricker and I actively campaigned to prevent people from catching the coelacan. But when we discovered that they're in fact much more widespread and probably more common than we previously thought and that you know, large numbers were for instance being caught off Tanzania where over 80 have been caught in the last 12 years, I changed my mind. I felt that we have reached the stage where there are some aspects of their biology, for instance are they parental guarders, do they guard their young, that we can only study in captivity. So the time has come for us to change our minds and as an internationally collaborative effort choose an aquarium that would be suitable for captive study. Now, I mean, this is not without difficulty because the coelacanth is on schedule one of CITES, it's, it's regarded as endangered, so there are many international protocols that would need to be taken into account. But I think the time has come for us to be able to study the animal under captive conditions.
1: And for us to be able to go and have a look at it. Yes, you know, can and can that's
2: that. a very useful way of generating funds for further research, not only in captivity, but also in the wild.
0: Gosh,
1: what a fascinating life you've led! Mike Bruton's book, his autobiography, is called When I Was a Fish, and he's also just released the book called Traditional Fishing Methods of Africa. Both of which I suggest you get hold of and have a jolly good read and be thoroughly entertained. Mike Bruton, thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. People of Note on Fine Music Radio was proudly brought to you by Peter Turin Productions. <music> stage at peter Turine's theater
2: on the bay a brand new fresh and exciting production of andrew lloyd Webber and tim rice's wonderful musical joseph and the amazing technicolor dreamcoat starring earl gregory as joseph the lagrange as the narrator and jonathan rocksmith as the rock and rolling pharaoh now on stage at peter Turen's theater on the bay
0: book now F-M-O.